It's good to be with you this evening, just to gather here and to be reminded of the events of this day, timeline of this day 2,000 years ago. It's been pretty much in my mind all day long as I've looked at the clock, I've remembered certain events that have been happening throughout the day, and so tonight it's my hope and and desire and ambition to kind of walk with us through the events of of this day. It was late Thursday evening when Jesus interrupted the last supper that he was having with his disciples and said to them, Arise, let us go from here. Quickly they left the upper room and headed out. Judas previously had been dismissed from the supper. He was bent on his evil mission. Judas found a group of soldiers, having been previously arranged, and he came back to arrest Jesus, to lead him away in the dead of night. But Christ had outfoxed him, was not there. Judas remembered that frequently they would go to a small enclosed garden. And so he led the soldiers there, and indeed there they found Christ. Judas betrayed him with a kiss. During the next hours, early in the morning, Jesus was subjected to a series of illegal trials, actually six of them in all, three Jewish and three Roman. These were a sham, a show trial, because the outcome had been predetermined. The Sanhedrin would get their desired result, and that is he would be crucified. The usual procedure for a condemned man was to be given into the custody of a centurion with a small squad of soldiers. And they would lead him through the streets of the city, taking the longest route available in order that he might be exposed to the greatest level of public ridicule. There the crowds would turn out and they would look on This one who had been already beaten was paraded through the streets. It was quite a spectacle. It was designed to crush all attitude of rebellion. That they might see what happens to one who dares raise his hand against Rome. The victim would carry their own cross. A placard would be going before them and outlining their crime. When they arrived at the place of crucifixion, and it was always outside the city and always located at a major thoroughfare, again, to give maximum exposure to this horrible spectacle. The victim would be laid on his back, his arms outstretched, fastened to the cross member, perhaps by ropes, 
in this case, by nails. A nail, an iron nail driven through each wrist and then another through both heels to fasten his legs to the upright. Cross would then be raised and dropped into a hole in the ground. Crucifixion was the most barbaric means of execution devised in the ancient world. It was slow. It was agonizing. It was degrading. It was designed to debase the person while their life slowly ebbed from their body. Death was caused by asphyxiation. Early, the victim would push off against the nail in his feet and be able to raise his body up enough to expand his chest and get a lung of air, which would then, his lungs would collapse, the air escape, and he would slump on the cross. This, depending on the strength of the victim, could go on for a very long period of time. It was a, it was a macabre kind of dance, up and down, twisted and contorted. Every time the searing pain of those nails tearing against flesh and ligament. Slowly, the victim would be unable to gather enough air to fill their lungs, and they would suffocate there on that cross. Sometimes it took days, days to die. Crucifixion was such a brutal form of execution that it was outlawed for Roman citizens. It was reserved only for the lowest of the low in society, the slave class or those who were insurrectionists or murderers. A Roman citizen could not be executed except by sanction from the emperor himself. Ancient society, even the mention of the word cross was considered off-limits in plight and civilized society. It was a horror. It was a spectacle. Parents would put their hands over their children's eyes that they might not gaze on and see this awful thing. For six hours, Jesus hung on that cross. Nine in the morning until three in the afternoon. During that time, the gospel writers tell us he uttered seven sayings. Seven times he opened his mouth to speak. No single gospel records all seven of those sayings, and so we must put the four gospels together in order to arrive at the totality of the words of Christ as he hung there and died over that six-hour period of time. When we put the four gospels together, we can deduce what he said and when he said it. The effort is more than worthwhile. And so tonight, I want to briefly examine with you seven sayings from the cross. Seven sayings from the cross. And in the process of doing that, we will get a glimpse at the wonder and the glory of that horrific event. 
We will be looking at Matthew's gospel and chapter 27, Mark's gospel, chapter 15, Luke's gospel, chapter 23, and John's gospel, chapter 19. We will be in the ends of all of those chapters. So stick your thumb in one of them and open to Luke's gospel, chapter 23. We begin with the first of the seven sayings from the cross. There are three that occur during the first three hours that he hung there, nine to noon. Three. And they begin with a word of compassion for his enemies. In fact, the first three sayings from the cross are all words of compassion. Words of compassion. The ancient writers report that the pain of crucifixion was so great that frequently the victim would scream in agony and curse those who had brought this about. Yet the first words out of the mouth of our Lord are not a curse, but a prayer for forgiveness. A prayer for forgiveness. Previously, Jesus himself forgave sin. But now something has changed. As soon as his blood began to flow from that cross, he engaged now in a ministry of intercession. A ministry of intercession. And so Jesus prayed, Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Forgive them. Forgive who? Who was Jesus referring to? Who was he praying for as his first prayer of intercession? We know that forgiveness does not come without repentance. That they are tied together. You cannot have one without first having the other. And so who would Jesus be praying for? Who would repent in the days following this horrific event? Who would repent? Who would believe? Well, Luke It so happens also wrote the book of Acts. In fact, the book of Acts is the second half of Luke's story. And there in the book of Acts, Luke answers the question for us. For whom did Jesus pray? So turn to Acts chapter 2 with me and see the The outcome of Jesus' prayer of compassion for his enemies. Father, forgive them. Acts chapter 2 and beginning in verse 36. This is at Pentecost. Which is 50 days following Passover. The Spirit of God has 
descended upon them. The new covenant has come as evidenced by the coming of the Spirit. And God has given to these early disciples an, an ability to speak in an unknown, a previously unknown language to them that they might proclaim the great news, the triumph of Messiah. The crowd is gathered and people listen to the message and they don't know what to make of it all. At which point Peter steps forward and begins to unfold the significance of this event. He preaches a lengthy sermon here, bringing the nation under conviction. Verse 36 is kind of the conclusion of that sermon. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord, our God, shall call to himself with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. What shall we do, they say? We have killed our Messiah. Now what? Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your conclusion that he was a blasphemer and died for his own sin and embrace him as both your Lord and your Messiah and be baptized in his name. Verse 41, and so then, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Chapter 4 of Acts, verse 4. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Acts chapter 6. And verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In what sense was it that they didn't know what they were doing? How could Jesus say that that Israel didn't know what she was doing? It's a fascinating question. In Acts chapter 3, verse 17, again, Peter preaching, and he says, verse 17, chapter 3, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his, his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Chapter 13, verse 27. 
For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. What was it that they didn't know? They didn't understand their own prophecies. They didn't understand their own scriptures. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. Where the prophet, 750 years before this time, records the following words. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet... We ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. They thought he was a blasphemer. They thought he died because he deserved to die. But he died for his own sin. How ignorant could they be? And yet Christ, in His first act on hanging on that cross, pours forth a heart of compassion, prays a prayer of intercession on behalf of these poor people who put Him there. And God answers that prayer in a remnant from this wicked and perverse generation is redeemed. My friends, Jesus was also praying for us. He was also praying for us because there is a very real sense in which my sin and yours put him there. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Jesus' forgiveness is still available. It's still open and available to all who will repent and receive him as Lord and King. Jesus has already prayed that God would receive you even tonight. He goes on and expresses a word of compassion to a thief. Verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Today I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise. A word of compassion for a thief. Pilate had ordered two criminals to be crucified to Jesus' left and his right. It's likely that he did this in order to further goad and provoke the Jewish authorities. They had boxed him into a corner into doing something he knew he shouldn't do and didn't want to do, but they maneuvered him politically until he felt he had no option. So he condemned an innocent man to death. 
He wanted to humiliate the Jewish leadership for what they had done to him. Verse 38, chapter 23, the inscription above Jesus reads, This is the king of the Jews. Israel, look at your king. Again, I say it's likely he ordered the execution of these two criminals in order to press the point home. During Jesus' time hanging there, the crowds would gather. They heaped insults upon him. They scorned Jesus and the criminals themselves joined in, heaping abuse upon him. But eventually the crowd went quiet. One of the criminals began to think more seriously about this man who is dying next to him. And so he calls out to him, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What an amazing confession of faith. One which flesh and blood could not have revealed to him. Think of it. A criminal. He was not a follower of Jesus. It's likely he had never even heard him preach. He's a man whose life had been consumed by evil and murder. Suddenly, he rises to a higher level of faith than the apostles themselves who had walked with Jesus for three years. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He calls Jesus the king. It's astounding. From all outward appearance, there is is nothing royal about him. He's broken. He is bruised. He is bloodied. He is anything but a king. And yet this thief calls out. He calls out in faith. Now his faith is no doubt childlike. It's no doubt underdeveloped. He's essentially calling for Jesus as as the Messiah of Israel who will one day come and establish his kingdom to remember him favorably at that future date. He doesn't ask for a place of honor in this coming kingdom. He knows very well that he deserves nothing like that. He is merely asking, will you let me in? I just want to get in. Somehow, when you come, King, remember me for good. What a heart of humility. What a a heart of contriteness. My friends, this is saving faith. This is saving faith. What was it about Jesus hanging there and and dying that, that somehow caused this thief to call out in faith? What was it? Perhaps it was Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It was so contrary to what would be expected. Perhaps it was the way that Jesus remained calm and serene, even while being reviled. First Peter chapter 2, 
And verse 23, while being reviled, he he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Perhaps it was just observing the way this man died that convinced him he's a king. But whatever it was, the man asked Jesus to be merciful to him at some future date, some unknown date when you come and return in your kingdom. Remember me, please. And Jesus says to him, you're going to be with Messiah in paradise today. Today. Compassion for a thief. Third, a word of compassion for his mother. In this third saying of Jesus, we we see vividly his, his love and his compassion for his mother, Mary. John is alone in narrating this account, and so we'll need to go to his gospel, John chapter 19, verse 26. John 19 and verse 26. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Piecing the narrative together, evidently what has happened is that John followed the crowds out to Golgotha and observed the crucifixion, saw Jesus nailed and then raised in crucifixion. And then he left the scene and went into the city to look for Mary, the mother of Jesus, that she might come, that he might bring her back and and that she might have a chance to say goodbye to her son. He found her in the city, but along with her, three other women, Matthew and tells us, and he brought them back with him. By this time, Jesus had been hanging there for a couple of hours. Seeing his mother, Jesus commends her into the care of her nephew, John. You see, John's mother, Salome, was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so he commends the care of his mother into that of her nephew. He will watch over her. This is the John of James and John, sons of Zebedee. Over 30 years earlier, the prophet Simeon had said to Mary that a sword would pierce her soul. And so it was. She looked upon her son and watched him die. No doubt with it, her hopes and her dreams too. I believe John whisked her away. I don't believe she stayed there the whole time and and literally saw the end. I think John took her It says there in Luke that he 
took her into his own household from that hour. I think he took her away, took her home, that he might care for her. And because her own sons were at this point unbelieving, John took over care of of his aunt. Word of compassion for his mother. You know, sometimes it can happen to us in the midst of our suffering that we think Christ is too busy for us. We're in a hard place in life. Perhaps some of you tonight are even there. Maybe you've received some news recently that is, has brought great pain into your life. And you could think to yourself, well, where's God in all this? Maybe He's too busy for me. Does He really care? My friends, here is Christ, His life blood ebbing out. And in full compassion, He cares for His mother. He cares for you. He cares for you. Don't ever forget that. Christ is never too busy, never preoccupied. Never got too much on his plate that he might forget about you. Jesus cares for you. As Jesus hung on that cross, he displayed the regal glory of a king, didn't he? Dispensing favor and compassion as if if he were sitting on a throne And yet he's hanging on a cross. But something's going to change now. He's about to enter into the long, dark night of his father's wrath. The time now is noon. Twelve o'clock. According to Matthew and Mark, it's the sixth hour of the day. That's noon. The sun would be at its high point in the sky. It would be illuminating all around with brightness. But instead, a thick darkness covers the land. The creator of light is now bracing himself to absorb the full weight of the fury of God against the sin of man. The holy wrath of God is now to be poured out. The sun is hidden in the sky. For three hours, the sun is obscured and and darkness, a darkness like unto the plague that befell Egypt, a darkness so thick you can touch it, covers the land. For three hours, silence and blackness. The Son of Man suffers. On that cross. We arrive now at the fourth saying from the cross. A cry of anguish. Matthew records it for us in his gospel, chapter 27.
It's been three hours and not a word. He's completely alone, separated and without help. And then just before three in the afternoon, he cries out in horror, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the full weight. The wrath of God is pushed down onto his soul. His words echo Psalm 22 and verse 1. They express the pain and the suffering brought on by the severing of his communion with his father. You remember earlier, Jesus had prayed, Father, forgive them. At the end, he will pray, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But not now. There is no communion now. There's no closeness now. There's no intimacy now. There is only wrath, anger, fury, and separation. This moment marks the climax of all that he went through. He had drained the cup of the wrath of the fury of God to its dregs. And he had suffered the unimaginable horror of alienation and abandonment from God. My friends, death is separation. And spiritual death is separation from God. At this moment in time, the, the great exchange had occurred. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, He who knew no sin had been made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. How could Jesus be forsaken by God? How could that be? How could there be a disruption in the inter-Trinitarian Communion, a fracturing in the Godhead. This is a mystery. It's an impenetrable mystery of the incarnation. We don't know. But it was essential. It was essential for Jesus to accomplish his mission to seek and to save those who were lost. And in fact, it had been long predicted by the prophets. Beloved, his scream should be ours. His cry of agony and abandonment should be ours. It was our sin that put him there. He tasted death for us. He is our substitute. He is our Passover lamb. We cling to him by faith. Not all of you can say that, though. Not all of you 
are trusting in Christ tonight. Some are still persuaded deep down inside that there's enough goodness in you to pass the test in the end. You could not be more deceived. You could not be more wrong. Listen to me. Jesus' cry of torment as He was abandoned by the Father will become your cry of torment and it will never cease. For without the covering of the righteousness of Christ, you are headed for the lake of fire. The Bible says that there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Forever. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let Jesus cry. Let Jesus sacrifice. Let Jesus' abandonment become yours. By faith, believe on Him. The bystanders were told misunderstood Jesus' cry. He cried out in Aramaic. They thought somehow that He was calling for the prophet Elijah. That He might come and and help him. But Jesus' next cry cleared that all up. Number five, we have a cry of fulfillment. John chapter 19. You know, part of the the horror of crucifixion lay in the burning thirst that came as a result of exposure and blood loss. The ancient writers said that the crucifixion victims suffered from massive headaches, a, a pounding pain brought on by the trauma to their body, aggravated by the thirst In the midst of this intensity in which Jesus felt all of that pain, you remember he had refused the mild narcotic at the beginning that had been offered him. And now he calls out for a drink. He calls out for a drink. Close at hand there, Around the foot of the cross would have been a jar of cheap, sour wine. This was the soldier's drink. It was a a cheap wine vinegar diluted with water. So Jesus cries out, I thirst. Someone, one of the bystanders, perhaps a soldier, we don't know, dipped a sponge, raised it up to him on a 
on a hyssop branch and offered it to him to, to soothe his parched lips, to, to clear his parched throat, to prepare the way for Jesus' next statement. Many people, by the way, played an unconscious role in this drama as it unfolded. Many players had no idea they were fulfilling scriptural prophecy in the events of that day. But that's not true of Jesus. His mind was so saturated with the word of God that even in the moment of his greatest trial, he still has his faculties about him. In the moment of his pain and impending death, he still understands who he is, what he came to do, and the scriptures that must be fulfilled. And so he said, I thirst. Verse 28, John 19. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. Even in that simple request, he's fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 21, where there it's recorded, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Every single detail. For the scriptures cannot be broken. I thirst, he cried. After receiving the drink, Moistening of his lips and throat. He cries out with a loud voice, according to Mark chapter 15, verse 37. It's a cry of victory now. There was a shout of triumph, not the whisper of a man who is exhausted and at the point of death. It was a conqueror. And he was in full control of his faculties right down to the end. And he proclaims his victory over sin. Verse 30, John 19. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. In the Greek, one word. One Greek word. Embodying all of the reality of the the ministry and mission of the Son of God. It is finished. To telestai in the Greek, it's a word drawn from commerce. It's a commercial term. It signifies the, the completion of a transaction by the payment in full of the obligation. It's the full purchase price for something. It's the final payment on a debt in which it's extinguished. We might say it this way, paid in full, paid in full. My friends, sin creates an obligation to God. It puts us as sinners in debt to a holy God. And that obligation must be discharged for us to be accepted by God. 
On that cross, Jesus gathered up. He accumulated all of the outstanding obligations, all bills, past, present, and future for all of his people. And he gathered them all together. And then he marked it paid in full with his own blood. With his own blood. And then he spoke once more. One more time. John says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But Luke tells us he spoke once more. He cried out one more time. Luke 23 Jesus, verse 46, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. One more cry. One more scripture to be fulfilled. Psalm 31 and verse 5. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. A cry of commitment. The work of redemption is now complete. The relationship between father and son has now been restored. The inter-Trinitarian fellowship that had been fractured there has now been repaired. And Jesus literally pillowed his head and gave up his spirit. In fulfillment of John chapter 10 and verse 18, no one has taken my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. My friends, Jesus did not die because his life slowly ebbed from him. Jesus did not die because a a Roman spear was thrust into his side. Fully in control, right to the end, Jesus released his soul to his father. He dismissed his soul from his body. He pillowed his head. He gave up his spirit and he died. And he died. Son of Man died for us. He fulfilled the mission for which God had sent him. He finished the work he had come to earth to do. He stood in my place and in yours. He actively fulfilled the law of God, perfect righteousness. And then at his cross, He gave that righteousness to you and to me and He took all of my sin upon Himself. God made Him who knew no sin sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Why is it Good Friday? What's so good about it? The answer is, my friends, 
that Christ made an end to sin and death. And if you will embrace Him by faith, you too will be a partaker of the greatest gift imaginable. I trust you know Christ this evening.